I played a gig in a theater in Krakow, Wales, and it was the first time the promoter had ever put on a gig. They did everything perfectly. Everything went really, really smooth. It was a sold-out crowd, and everybody seemed to enjoy the gig. So afterwards, I was sitting in my dressing room, and uh, the promoter walked in with his seven-year-old son. The kid wanted to tell me how much he enjoyed the show, and he said he liked it so much that he thought that I was almost as good as Linkin Park. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee on a beautiful, beautiful afternoon. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. And I have to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Slade Cleaves. And Slade is a singer-songwriter based in Wimberley, Texas. I first heard about Slade, it was over 10 years ago when my best buddy Todd and I went out to the Woody Guthrie Folk Festival in Okima, Oklahoma. And I remember standing out in the middle of a field in front of a lot of people and Slade just really, really resonated with us. We really enjoyed it. And when I got back home, I started looking for albums, and somebody told me to buy Broke Down. And I bought it, and it ended up being one of my favorite albums of the last 10 years. And I've ended up buying every album since then, and uh, I've really enjoyed every one of them. I'm a big fan. You can find out everything you need to know about Slade Cleaves at Slade.com. Slade originally wanted us to meet up at the Horseshoe Lounge in South Austin, Texas. And I thought that was a great idea, so we went and met there. But it was way too loud to really record anything, and the jukebox was going. So we sat around for a while while he had a beer, and I had a cranberry, and we talked for a bit. Had a nice afternoon. And then we went over to my buddy Cameron Smith's house in South Austin. And Cameron was nice enough to let me use his living room. So we sat there and had this conversation. Here's Slade Cleaves. I do remember seeing a billboard down by Waterloo Records my first month in town, and uh, Karen and I pretty much spent our life savings to get here, and then we're flat broke when we got to Austin in December of 91, and I saw this billboard uh, asking for healthy male volunteers, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's about all I had going for me at the time, (laughs) had no money, and no friends, didn't know a soul in town, didn't have a job, didn't have any work. I passed away. I passed around my cassette tapes to all the bars in town, and nobody ever called me back. And so I called up the Pharmaco and uh, learned that they were uh, accepting volunteers for phase one clinical drug trials. So the you know the FDA has to test drugs on humans at some point. You know between the the mice and the monkeys and the on the shelves at the store, you know, got the healthy male volunteer. And so I became a volunteer and 
at Pharmaco. And I'd do two or three studies a year for about eight, eight or nine years, I guess. So the studies uh, range from a weekend or two or three successive weekends. You go into the facility and they check you in. It's kind of like a hospital dorm and they give you drugs and give you a dose and take your blood all day and send you home. And uh, Some of them are longer. Some of them you're in for 10 days. I did one uh, about three weeks. I think it was 21 days in facility. So uh, I brought my laptop and I wrote my, my first uh, website at Pharmaco. Yeah, a lot of time on your hands. <laughs> I was industrious, yeah. It, just, it was a perfect gig for me. I didn't want to flip burgers, you know, for minimum wage. And this Pharmaco gig, it, it paid a, it was about $150 a day, um, which was, you know, if I did a, a, a 10-day study and come out of there with $1,500, and, you know, I could live on that for a couple months back then. Yeah. Right? What were they studying? Well, just everything, man. Um, um, I got to where uh, the internet was just coming online then, so I, I got to, uh, I guess not origin, not in the first few studies I did, but after I started doing studies, I became more savvy, and I would go online and, and see if the drug like had been uh, on the market in Europe previously, or or had been available in a slightly different form for previous years, because like any time they change the 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 formula or the dosage of this of the drug they have to run through this study so I, I i did a tylenol study it was like children's tylenol just in a little cup or something liquid and so i was comfortable that that would be a, a benign study to do <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes if i was hard up i would do uh something a little nastier i did a i did a study for um i think it was for psoriasis and it was a it was a lotion they put on my back twice a day for two weeks or something like that. And then I had to have a biopsy on each side of my back, my shoulder blades, because one was the placebo and one was the drug. And they took a skin biopsy to check it. That was, that was a little spooky. That was early on. I was pretty desperate. But some were, uh, like I said, drugs that are on the market. I did an estrogen study. I can't remember what they were doing different with estrogen, but it was just like a different formulation. I did something which I remember... They called it time-release morphine, and I think it was OxyContin is what it was. It was before that was on the market. And uh, Did you feel the effects of that? You know, that one just kind of made me feel sick, kind of nauseous. I tried to avoid the studies that predicted you being nauseous or, you know, uh, any kind of side effects. Because they'll tell you generally what they expect, and I would avoid the nasty ones. But uh, one I did was uh, they were... They were testing a drug that had been on the market for something, but they wanted to relabel it as a anti-bedwetting drug. <laughs> <laughs> for adults or for? Oh, they didn't say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just to that study was they gave you a, a pint of water to drink at some point during the day, and then sort of like sent into the bathroom with a beaker for the next. 12 hours and of course nothing happened for six hours and then all of a sudden it would start to flow and then of course you know a bunch of guys in there became kind of a well a pissing contest you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh one guy needed two two one liter beakers he was the hero of the study yeah yeah we had been in town for just a matter of days and we were house sitting for the only people we knew in town or some friends of the old friends of the family from back east and they they went back east for the holidays, so 
we were in this empty house and didn't know a soul and had no money. Like I said, we used all the money we had just to get here, get our first month's rent. Um, looking in the paper for uh, something to do, and we saw that there was a free show, New Year's Eve, free show at Henry's Roadside Bar and Grill up on Burnett Road. And there was supposedly this singer who was supposed to be a great singer there named Don Walzer. So we went, and uh, not only was Don Walzer there with the Pure Texas Band, but the, the Rockabilly Band High Noon was there as part of the night. And that just blew us away. I was a big Rockabilly fan growing up. And and uh, so that was worth the price of admission right there. <laughs> and Don Walzer got up and just blew our minds, you know. Can you imagine seeing Don Walzer for the first time oh, yeah. in person? And, and we had just moved here, and Henry's was just this wonderful horseshoe lounge kind of place at the time, very smoky, old couples, young couples, kids, punk rockers, and, uh, you know, pickled pig's feet on the bar, and just classic roadhouse. And, and Karen and I just, we just, uh, we just started pinching each other and saying, we are the smartest people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving Portland, Maine in the dead of winter to move to Austin where we could grill hamburgers out on our porch in January. <laughs> Pretty smart. You could go hear the Pavarotti of the Plains. For free. For free. <laughs> <laughs> My first car was a hand-me-down. My dad's old uh, duster didn't pass inspection anymore. Had too many rust holes in it, so he got a new car. And it sat in the field for a couple of years, and and then I turned 16 and got my license. And my dad said, "Well, if you get that car to pass inspection, you can have it." You know, so I learned how to do sheet metal and bondo and change spark plugs, and went through a series of those old dusters and darts for years and years. And when I started touring with a couple of side guys, I went and got a van. I went to the police impound auction, actually. <laughs> and I bought a, an abandoned van for $300. I thought after 15 years of experience with the Mopar vehicles, I could fix up a Dodge van. It was a 77. And uh, it was a challenge. I, I got it going, but it, was, it ran pretty rough. And, and then, uh, then Broke Down came out in 2000, and I started doing a little better, and I upgraded to a big old... Uh, a 1986 Dodge conversion van. This thing was huge, you know, with a big kind of Starsky and Hutch kind of panel on the side. And this was in 19, well, this is in 2000. So it was a, it was a little worn out, but pretty decent shape. And, and uh, yeah, I do my own work on the, on the road. I, you know, change my own oil. And I remember one time I, I replaced a ball joint between sound check and the gig at a gig in Pennsylvania once. <laughs> <laughs> Promoter was pretty, pretty impressed with that, but... I remember driving in that van with Adam one time. We took Adam on the road with us uh, as an opening act. Adam Carroll? Yeah. We took Adam Carroll out as an opening act years ago, and we picked him up somewhere. <laughs> what happened? We picked him up. We, we saw him at the airport, and we had to go around a corner or something to, to, to pick him up at, in front of the airport somewhere. We picked him up, Oklahoma or something. And... uh he like he went to get on a shuttle bus to meet us somewhere, and he got on the wrong bus, and like we didn't see him for two hours or something. <laughs> he just he like went out of town. But anyway, but the the story I was going to tell you about Adam is, I remember driving through Tennessee, I think, and Adam Carroll was in the van as the opening act, and I had the band with me, and, and we saw a sign for a local restaurant, 
And we're always on the lookout to do something different from the standard McDonald's and Subway if we have time and if we see a good lead. So we saw a billboard for a local restaurant, Southern Cooking, and, you know, chicken fried steak, whatever, fried chicken. It looked great. So we pulled over. We walk in, and there's these... Uh, there are these amazing, huge cheeseburgers coming out of the kitchen that we thought, all right, this is the place. And we sit down, we look at the menu, there's, there's chicken livers, there's chicken fried steak, all this great greasy southern fried food, and we all got something different. The food came, and it was a little disappointing. It was a little too heavy and a little too greasy, and it was kind of, it, was, it wasn't as good as it felt like anyway. It felt like it was going to be. Anyway, we go on down the road, whatever, play a couple more shows, about two or three days later, driving a long stretch and I see Adam looking out the window just kind of staring out the window I said Adam what are you thinking about he said oh I was just thinking I should have got them dang old cheeseburgers it's <laughs> <laughs> <That was> tragic <laughs> you blew it you're so close did a junior year abroad program, spent a school year in Cork, Ireland. And uh, I had been in garage bands as a kid in high school, but I played keyboards because I was a piano player. I took piano lessons as a little kid, and so when I formed a garage band with my old buddy Rod Picot in high school, he played guitar and I played the electric keyboard. Uh, but when I went off to college, you know, I started wanting to write songs and being, the, you know, being a songwriter and a singer. So I picked up a guitar in college, and when I went over to Cork, I, I brought a suitcase full of cassettes of my favorite music and my dad's music from the from the attic. And you know, I was listening to Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty and Tom Waits and The Clash and The Pogues, and um, and my dad had all these great old records that I taped and brought over with me, and it was Buddy Holly and Hank Williams and Johnny Cash and all that great early rock and roll stuff and country. So I I, uh, I got to my little apartment in uh, in uh, Cork. I'd followed a girlfriend over there. That was the whole reason I went over is because my girlfriend had Irish roots, and she thought, "Hey, let's go to Ireland for a year." I said, "Okay, girl, sure." <laughs> and then uh, she pretty much dumped me on the plane on the way over. <laughs> so I ended up in this uh, in this little tiny cold water bed sit just outside of Cork, Ireland, between downtown and the university. So a little tiny one-room apartment with a bathroom upstairs, uh, all by myself, you know, no friends, no family, no girlfriend, no TV, no job, no car, no telephone. It was really sad. Uh, but I had a, a cassette, I had a, a suitcase full of cassette tapes, and I brought a guitar over with me too. And I thought, I'm going to learn this guitar, and I was so heartbroken, you know, I started writing heartbroken songs, and... And I was, uh, I started learning songs. I said, I'm going to learn a song a day until I'm ready to go out and play on the street. Cork at the time, I don't know what it's like now, I haven't been there in years, but Cork at the time had this beautiful, vibrant, vibrant downtown with all these grocery stores and movie theaters and clothes stores, and it was just packed full of pedestrians, and they had pedestrian streets and um, lots of traffic, lots of foot traffic, and lots of buskers, people singing on sidewalks, people... Uh, playing flute or playing fiddle or there was even uh, an escape artist who used to perform on uh, on Winthrop Street or Pearl Street. So uh, that was inspiring to me and it was a real goal for me to really, okay, I'm going to learn how to sing and play and the best place to do it would be on a street corner 
where no one would have to listen to me because I knew that I would be bad when I started. I knew I wouldn't be good. When first time you do something, you're never good at it, right? So, and I didn't want to subject myself to people at an open mic or something. So uh, I learned a song a day, and I set a date, a deadline. And on that day, November 18th, 1985, I, I uh, walked into the city center with my guitar, and I set out my soft case in front of me and started playing. Remember any of the songs you played? Yeah, I gave a lot of thought to which songs. That, the first song I would play, and I chose a Buddy Holly song called Well All Right. And it's just this beautiful, sweet, innocent song about being young, you know, and being young and having promise, and it's all right. I sang that first, and, oh, I imagine I sang some Hank Williams songs and some Johnny Cash songs, and I don't think I'd finished any of mine yet. I was just starting to write my first batch of songs. Yeah, yeah, this guitar I play, my dad bought in... in 1965, I think. I was a baby. He had he already had a guitar. He had a K guitar. And um, he was in graduate school, and I was a baby, and there was my little brother was on the way. And so he's living on this stipend in this little this little house outside of D.C. And for some reason, he, I, I think he said he just walked by the store and just fell in love with his guitar and said, I got to have this guitar. I don't know how he paid for it cost $140, which was a lot in 1965, you know. What kind of guitar is it? It's a, it's a Gibson J50 guitar. And um, he bought it, and, and he told me, well, uh, years after, he sort of let me take it, and he had a Martin, and I needed a guitar. And I actually had a, I had a Yamaha, and I kept breaking strings. I was in a band with a drummer, and he was really loud, and so I'd play loud, and I'd break strings, and I asked my dad if I could borrow his guitar just as a backup, his Gibson, and then I soon realized that the Gibson was much nicer than my Yamaha, and I learned how to play and not break strings, so that's how I ended up with his guitar about 20 years ago. And then like 10 years after I had had it, he, he mentioned to me that he bought the guitar, but he knew my mother would freak out if he brought home this brand new expenditure, you know, un, uh, without permission. So he left it in the trunk of his car, and he would drive to the park and take it out and play it, <laughs> and then pack it back in the trunk and go home. <laughs> That's a uh, dedicated man. He really wanted that guitar, man. And, uh, I don't know. What happened when you finally brought it home? Snuck it home. Well, you know, I had that van that I bought at the police impound auction, and that was, uh, I bought that after I got my first record deal with Rounder, and, and, you know, they got me some radio play around the country, and I thought, well, okay, I gotta put a band together and go to all these towns. And, and I booked a tour, and, and uh, it was June of uh, probably 1997 or 98. So uh, I got to Ivan Brown on bass and my old buddy Charles Arthur on guitar, and we got together, and it was so exciting. You know, it was my first kind of cross-country tour. You know, I was really, really excited about it. And I had this $300 van and that I'd been working on and, you know, customizing. <laughs> Built a bunk in the back, you know, tuned up the engine. We headed out on this tour, and it was a heat wave. It was 95 degrees wherever we went. And, of course, the van didn't have AC, and not only that, but the... You know, the, the gasket around the motor 
cover was blown, so hot air was blowing on your feet all the time. And uh, it was just miserable. And, uh, you know, we had a couple of decent gigs and a couple of really lame gigs. And um, the van lost oil pressure on our way into Chicago, and I had to have it fixed up there. Oh, what happened? Oh, I know. Uh, So we didn't have our van for a few days, and somebody at a gig offered me their car. Somebody in Chicago said, hey, you can use my car for a few days. Great. The guy gives me the keys. It's a Lexus. So I'm, I'm driving around in town in a Lexus for a couple of days. But, but meanwhile, I couldn't afford hotels. And so I had wrangled um, my booking agent, knew a doctor, and said we could stay in his doctor's office. And uh, I stayed with my cousin, but my band, um, Charles and, and Ivan, <laughs> They uh, they stayed in like the reception room of this doctor's office for the night, and had to, you know, and they they slept on couch cu- couch cushions, and uh, <laughs> had to get up at like eight o'clock when the patients started arriving. <laughs> <laughs> that was while I was getting the van fixed, and and then when I showed up in the van, they had all their stuff, and they get they got kicked out of the doctor's office, and they were just like laying on the ground under a tree all day waiting for me to come pick them up. (laughs) But we talk about that tour as like the funnest tour ever, even though it was the most bare bones, the harshest, the lowest money, the least comfortable, the least cushy. But because it was our first tour, you know, we look back on it with great fondness. When I did the, the few hotels I did get, we'd have to share one hotel room. And so I'd get one with a with two beds, hopefully, but there was three of us, so I had a bedroll. I had like a little egg crate cushion that we'd roll out on the floor with a sleeping bag, and we all took turns sleeping on the floor. We were living the dream, man. Yeah, in that in that 77 van sleeping on floors, we were living the dream. It was so much fun. Yeah. Well, you know, you can tell by the stories I've told. I'm always trying to get out of doing a regular job. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I've done, every, I've done, uh, you know, whatever, landscaping and worked at a warehouse at Sears and, uh, you know, worked in stores and delivered pizza. And I don't know, somehow I saw, I fell for the ad in the paper saying, you know, be your own boss, make this much money a week, whatever it was, 500 bucks a week, be your own boss. It was uh, a guy had a fleet of ice cream trucks and a big freezer and he, he'd rent you the truck and sell you the ice cream. And you'd drive it around the neighborhood and sell. And that's what I did uh, for a summer after, uh, between college years. I drove an ice cream truck down in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I learned pretty quick that the, well, first I I drove around my neighborhood. And there's just, I was kind of rural little town in Maine. And I realized I had to go to the city. So I found the city, drove down to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and found that the best place to go is the housing projects. Because there's a huge influx of, you know, huge concentration of people, lots of families with kids, lots of kids running around with a couple quarters in their pocket. So I'd drive from housing project to housing project and sell ice cream all day. And uh, it never never really made much money. And my brothers, I have two little brothers, and they, they told me that they and their buddies used to break into my ice cream truck and eat my ice cream at night. <laughs> <laughs> I was off playing in a band, you know, at the night and, and in the night. And uh, that's how I lost most of my profits. But, um, yeah, I remember you, you, know, you see some scrappy little characters there in the housing projects. They would, they were, you know, tough little kids. Uh, 
they would love to see the ice cream truck and, you know, taunt me for free stuff and some would buy stuff. And, and then when I pulled out of their, pulled down their street, they'd jump on the back of the truck and hang on, you know, when I'm driving slowly. And I, you know, I knew how dangerous that was and I hated that and I'd yell at them and, you know, and they didn't listen, you know, they'd jump off and get right back. So I devised a, uh, a strategy is, uh, the next day, uh, before I went out, I got a little can of Vaseline and I put it on all their little handholds. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't wait to see how it worked. And sure, I made my first stop, sold a bunch of snow cones and pop bombs, and uh, I pulled out from my first stop and I saw the guys jumping up on the, on the truck and slipping off and looking at their hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you get paid? Was it hourly? Or? No, it was a it was a business, man. It Commission? was a business. It was a business proposition. I paid that guy. He he was the smart guy. The guy who ran the the operation. I paid him a monthly or a weekly rental on the truck, and I had to buy all my stuff from him. So it was up to me to sell. I mean, yeah. You know, once I paid, I paid for my ice cream and candy and everything, and had to pay for my own gas, and and I paid the weekly rental on the truck. And I hoped for good weather and worked 12 hours a day driving around <laughs> selling ice cream. And, you know, you, you, you make your, I learned a great valuable business lesson in retail is, you know, you break even after the first three or four days. And then if you can get through two or three more days in, you'll get your profit. But if it rains on the fourth day, then you're just going to break even that week. So tough lesson. You did better than I did. I, I drove for three days, and uh, the deal was you had to sell $110 um, worth of ice cream, and then anything over that in one day, is uh, right. you end up getting like 75% of and that's your pay. Mm, okay. And I never sold $100 worth. <laughs> and after three days, I was like, hell with this, and I quit. Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? We call day for nothing just to pay the man. I answered an ad in the paper when I was in college looking for a part-time job to help pay expenses. And, uh, it was my sophomore year for Somerville House of Pizza. It was a local, one of the local pizza shops outside the college, outside of Boston. And uh, hired on as a delivery driver and got to know the family. It's just this little mom-and-pop thing. Literally, mom-and-pop came over from Greece in the 60s. And... Uh, started a family in the States, so they had a son and a daughter who worked at the pizza parlor, and that was it. It was just mom and dad and daughter and son and, and me, and maybe they had another delivery driver, maybe. But so I really got to know the family, and the mother, mom and dad just barely spoke English, and uh, the kids would teach me Greek while I was there and just hanging out, and, you know, I got tired of hanging out, so I started helping out, taking out the garbage or whatever, loading loading supplies, and eventually they, they taught me how to make the pizzas and how to make the subs, and, and I became a I became a, a counter guy, too, you know, taking money and making stuff. So uh, I just became close to them, and, and uh, it's just a sweet family. They, uh, the son-in-law... It was this guy from Chicago who married into the family, Bill. And he would, he would teach me Greek while we're sitting there making pizzas and things are slow. And he says, all right, I'm going to teach you some Greek. Okay. He had already taught me Tikhanis, which is, hello, how are you? You know, they taught me that first of all. And so one day he says, okay, you see your buddy on the street? You say, Tikhanis Malaka. Like I practice it a few times. Tikhanis Malaka, Tikhanis Malaka. 
So then mom, his mother-in-law, comes in the door for the afternoon shift. She opens up the door and I shout, Tikanis Malaka! And she bends over laughing, <laughs> hysterical laughing for 10 minutes. And Bill is laughing his ass off too. And, and uh, they won't tell me what it is. And it, it means jerk off is what it is. Because that's what, this is what you say to your friend. Hello, jerk off. It's, what are you doing? So I said that to the boss and the mother-in-law. <laughs> Yeah, well, Karen and I had lived in East Austin for about 12 years. We bought a house over there, our first house. The only house we could afford anywhere near downtown Austin was on the east side while the gunshots were still echoing, so everyone else was afraid to go over. But uh, we had a sense that the gangbangers had all been cleaned out and, and that it was a great place to live, so close to town and very affordable. And uh, that was in 99, I think. So about 10, 11 years later... Eastside becomes the hipsterville, and it's a lot more crowded than it used to be, and a lot more expensive. We decided to cash out and move out to the country last year, so we moved down to Wimberley, a place we've seen and always wanted to live in. So we found this really cool house outside of Wimberley, and uh, it's just a it's a small town, and we're we've got nice neighbors, and everything's spread out, and lots of trees and breezes, and rider bikes around. There's not much traffic, and downtown is really quaint you know i can drive downtown and go to the auto parts store and the hardware store and the grocery store and get gas you know it's all within a half a mile it's like mayberry bump into friends at the post office um and a lot of musicians uh live down there ray wiley hubbard lives there of course and kevin welch and butch hancock and susan gibson and billy bright and uh, andrew hardin and just uh we could put out put a pretty good all star band together in Wimberley, in Wimberley <laughs> if we wanted to. Yeah. A good uh, guitar store there also. Here's what we talk about. There's a wonderful Hill Country Guitars. Lots of really great high end acoustic guitars. Yeah, they're all handmade there. Well, they're yeah they're they're high end kind of Collins and and uh, uh, is it uh, uh, Dalton and Huss or Huss and Dalton? I can't remember. Really nice Virginia made guitars that I've that I've played before. Uh, so yeah, nice guitar shops and, um, there's really good tacos at the, at the Diamond Shamrock is where you want to go get your tacos in Wimberley. As a northerner, what was it like to come down here and all of a sudden be introduced to, you know, like breakfast tacos? Mm. Yeah, well, you know, Karen and I moved down from, from Portland to Austin and there's a big cultural shift there, of course. And it was, there was a learning curve for sure, um. Just learning, uh, uh, well, we we kind of lost our New England accents after a couple of years. Just got tired of being called damn Yankees. <laughs> 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 and it's so easy to kind of fall into that Southern thing, you know, fixing and y'all and all that. Uh, so it's second nature now. But yeah, I mean, we'd never heard of pico de gallo, you know, never eaten an avocado. I, well, I tried one and they just tasted awful back in Maine, you know, because yeah. they're old or whatever, they're not ripe or something, but now I love avocados and make pico de gallo and fajitas all the time, and, um, you know, can smoke a brisket if I need to, and deep fried turkey, and, you know, all sorts of stuff to learn, tequila, you know, know how to drink tequila, and, yeah, and I had, you know, I had friends that taught me all these things my first couple years here, so it's been quite an adventure. Appreciate you taking time to 
chat with me. Yeah, it's been good, man. Good questions, good stories to pull out of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about a lot of those. I hadn't talked about them in a long time. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Slade Cleves for agreeing to have this conversation with me in South Austin. And I'd like to thank my buddy Cam for letting us use his living room. You can find out everything you need to know about Slade Cleves at slade.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any album I've ever made there. You can uh, buy one of my fine art photographic prints. You could pick up a copy of Amy's record. You could buy Amy's children's book. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. It helps us move up in the search rankings and helps a lot more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, Please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.